Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. It is my great privilege to have as our conversation partner today, Wendy Alsop, who is a mom, an author, a college teacher. She loves math and theology. She wrote a book not too long ago called Companions in Suffering, Comfort for Times of Loss and Loneliness with InterVarsity Press. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Wendy, talk about being a mom and a math teacher. What does that world look like for you these days? Well, it's a little bit better than it used to be because my boys are now uh, at an age where I'm actually helpful to them. Okay. They, uh, I've always been concerned about their math education, but they um, had a hard line because they mostly could get it. But um, algebra two, pre-cal, that kind of stuff. Now, now I'm a good friend. I'm a good nice. friend. And what <laughs> what age are your boys these days? Uh, one's graduating from high school on Saturday, and okay. the other one will is a sophomore in high school. Great. Well, congratulations to your eldest. That's quite an achievement. Does he have plans for what he wants to do next? Yeah, he's heading to study computer science in college. So hopefully that will go well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Wendy, talk to me a little bit about the backstory for the book. What was it that, and again, I know you've written other works, but what was it specifically that prompted you to write a book on uh, loss, loneliness, and grief? Well, I had had some experiences with grief over the years, but then I entered a really intense season of suffering after my now ex-husband was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Okay. Um, we were married at the time and I didn't understand what it was and it turned our lives upside down and he's actually fairly stable now. And we have a, okay. a reasonably good relationship with the boys together as a, a weird, but functional, I, I always joke, we put the fun and dysfunctional, you know, when that first really came on, it just totally, um, knocked me over and I didn't understand how to make sense of life at all. And I had no idea how to navigate it. And how long and in I, your marriage did that happen? About 16 years. Okay. Um, and the boys were maybe um, six and eight at that point. Okay. Um, and then I was just starting to get my feet back under me. I had had to move home to my family because I couldn't afford our life. We were living in Seattle at the time. I couldn't afford that on my own salary and uh, had just moved back to South Carolina to our family farm. So close to my parents, close to my sister. And I was just getting my feet back under me. And I was diagnosed with breast cancer that was in my lymph node. That really, like the first knocked me off, right? Totally knocked me off center. But it was the second as I was feeling like, it's like that wave, you get knocked over by a wave and you're just starting to feel your feet under you, you're getting up for a breath and then another wave comes over you and you suddenly realize I may never get out of this survival mode. I may be fighting just for a breath for a lot longer than I ever realized. And that was really demoralizing to me, but the Lord really met me in it through scripture, through um, other believers. And that became the catalyst for the book. And it's it's called Companions and Suffering because it's really about the innate alienation we feel, especially in today's social media world, when everybody else seems to be going on their happy vacations and our lives have ground to a halt. And it's very alienating. 
how the Lord meets us in that. And he does not leave us as orphans. That's what Jesus said. I will not leave you as orphans. So that's kind of how the book came about. And what were some of the lessons that you obviously learned the lessons before you wrote it, but even as you were writing it, what were some of the things that may have been blurry that started to come into focus for you? Well, one thing I did a little informal Twitter poll folks that follow me on Twitter. And I just asked, you know, at at a really intense part of suffering in your life, what do you wish people had understood? And I almost, I think it was like 80% of the responses had something to do with loneliness and alienation. Like, I just wish people knew that how alone I felt, or I wish they knew that when I don't show up, that it doesn't mean that, um, that I don't care it's, or, or that I'm mad at them. You know, so it was so much about alienation. And as I was writing it, it was just so beautiful to see in scripture over and over again, how God has accounted for that. Just the Psalms that are preserved for us. How many Psalms articulate this? So, you know, well, I'm not actually alone in this alienation that I feel. Job felt alienation. David felt alienation. And then they also give us language to put it into words so that we know how to articulate it, whether it's to someone else or more importantly to God. I felt guilty for how I felt. I felt guilty like uh, Christians aren't supposed to feel like this. And then to see in the scriptures, oh, wait, no, Christians have always felt like this. And God has not left me as an orphan to figure out how to articulate it to God. So working through that and trying to figure out, I always say, you know, when I write to someone else, it started as a lecture to myself. Putting it into words and organizing it to articulate it to someone else was really meaningful in my own heart. So beautiful. Wendy, what were some of your lifelines in that really hectic season where you you felt like you just were struggling to breathe? One um, great one was the Bible itself, but I hesitate to say that because I also could hardly bring myself to read the Bible, but what I found was I had like this antsy energy. I had to work out like, I was like, what, you know, and needing to shape things and I couldn't, I needed to do something, but there was nothing I could do. So I started walking. I I have a farmhouse and we have a a looped driveway around it. It's pretty big, a dirt driveway. And I started walking that to get out that nervous energy and that angsty because I couldn't sit down. I couldn't. I had to move. And I started listening to Job on audio Bible. And it was the audio Bible, someone else reading it to me that kind of got me over that hurdle because I couldn't really sit down and focus on it myself. And I would skip through his friends. (laughs) And I didn't even allow myself to go to the very end. What I just kept listening to over and over again was Job's articulation of his struggle. And it gave me words. Like I would stop in the middle of the walk and I'm like, wow, Job said that. And that is how I feel. Like Job gave me words for emotions. I couldn't even really verbalize what was going on in my head, but Job would say it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, Lord, I feel that too. But it was also God giving me permission from scripture to say, say it, say it, Wendy, and say it to me. And here's your guide. 
And it was working through that, that walk, that listening to scripture, that I could finally get to the point. And it took me a little while of listening to the same things over and over again to get to that ending where God finally stands up to Job and says, hey, this is who I am. And Job is able to hear it and respond to it. But Job was an excellent companion to me through that Bible app to get to that place when I wasn't there on my own. I, I love the way that you you frame that, Wendy, because I think sometimes we, and again, I don't, it's not anybody's fault, but I think sometimes we go to the scripture for answers. Like, hey, I've got a question about that. I go to a scripture for my why. And I love the fact that you said, no, I went to scriptures or God in the scriptures, God gave me a gift that was a how. How do I articulate this crazy jumble of emotions into speech? You know, Paul says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when all we have are, are groans, right? And I, I'm hearing you say that in your groaning, Job was able to translate that into coherent speech that was helpful for you to voice back to God. Am I hearing that correctly? Absolutely. Yes. And I love that passage about groaning because a lot of times all you can do is groan. Yeah. And, um, but Job also gave me language to even, it was almost like therapy where I didn't even know what I was really feeling, but I was feeling some bad things about God. Mm -hmm. I was, and I didn't want to say it. Psalm 73 was another big comfort to me where, where the, uh, Asaph says, he's telling you all these things he's feeling inside. And he said, if I verbalize that to the congregation, you know, that would be really bad. So I'm not going to verbalize that to the congregation, even though he did eventually put it in a psalm that was kept. But I thought about that a lot. Like I'm feeling things inwardly that I don't even want to verbalize because they strike at what I feel like the core of my faith. And so what Job did was gave me language to say it. And then it was like such a relief because God knew I would feel that way. And so there was like the sovereign miracle in Job written so many years ago, the earliest book, they think, that was ever put on paper in the Bible. And so all these years ago, God knew the kind of emotional battles that we would face that we don't even exactly know how to articulate. And he preserved it in his eternal word. And it was that miracle, that companionship from the spirit through the words of Job that really got me over a major hurdle in my own brain. Wendy, how did you navigate it as a mom? Because I think sometimes as parents, we struggle with wanting our kids to be able to see us authentically walk out our journey and at the same time protecting them from some of our own angst. What, what shape did that take for you? Yeah. And it was a little, it was hard for us because their father was not, someone they could count on. And so they had been very uh, dependent on me. And they would tell you now, they didn't really fully understand what was going on um, through my surgeries. Not that I hid it from them, but I just never told them how serious it was. So my sisters taught them kind of how to help take care of me when I couldn't get out of, you know, after breast cancer surgery, you have problems sitting up and and so they taught him how to care for me, but I don't think they ever really knew the seriousness of it at that time. But in general, what I was counseled to do by a wise friend who was a counselor was not to discount their reality. So I didn't necessarily have to dump on them, oh, this is really bad. 
But if they notice, particularly with their dad, something odd or strange, I owned it. I'm like, yeah, there, there is something wrong here because I didn't want them to doubt their perceptions of a reality. Hmm. And sometimes with their dad in particular, there was just mourning, especially once we had to separate this, that was a really hard thing. And one of my children, I just remember he was so broken over it. And I was able to stamp down the desire to fix it or minimize it and just mourn with him. So we held each other and cried together. And I think we had to walk through that. He had to be able to walk through it. He had to be able to mourn it. And it would have been wrong of me to try to discount what he was feeling. But sometimes as a parent, you're so threatened by your child's pain. Does that mean I'm a bad parent? You know, no, this is not. But look at all these great things we're going to do where really what I needed to do was validate. Yeah, this does really stink. This is hard. Yeah, your friends have their dads here at church camp with them and we don't. And I, I feel like, honestly, my boys are fairly mentally healthy for what we've gone through. And I would attribute that to facing it head on and not discounting the pain when it came up. Yeah, that's, that's a really great insight. Thank you for sharing that. When you were writing the book, what was your take on when you talk about loneliness? When, when is loneliness a gift and when is loneliness a threat that we need to figure out how to address with being proactive about leaning into community? Yeah, I think loneliness is a gift when it causes us to lean into the community of Christ. Okay. Like, like God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit. So there were moments when there were many moments where the body of Christ, the people in my life were great supports to me, necessary supports. And we talk about that a lot in the book. How do you find the kind of people that can stand with you in these really hard faith threatening type of circumstances? But there were also some moments where there was nobody, particularly in the ICU for me, after my surgery, um, I, I had a, several days in the ICU and limited friends that could come through. And I knew that the cancer was in my lymph node at that point, but the cancer surgeon never came by. It was just the, um, the other doctor that would come by because he was the one in charge of the pain medicine. But the cancer doctor had handed me over to the oncologist, which I wouldn't see in two months. So for, I had about a two-month period of nobody telling me what it meant that this cancer was in my lymph node, which was, ah, oh, that was so hard. I need, to count, I need to call the hospital and tell them, don't do it that way. But I was so alone in the ICU with these thoughts. But that loneliness made me lean into the Savior. And he was there. He was truly there with me. God was with me. But it really wasn't. I think Tim Keller has said this. It isn't until Jesus is all you have that you realize Jesus is all you need. Mm -hmm. And so that moment ended up being the harshest in my journey and the most beautiful in my journey because Jesus met me in it and he was wounded. Jesus who was wounded, not, I was wounded for my own benefit to save me from cancer. And Jesus was wounded, not for his own benefit, but for mine. And he could, he stood with me in the pain. I knew he understood the pain. I was in pain and I was on morphine. Mm. 
And he endured those types of injuries without morphine. And I was doing it for my benefit, but he did not do it for his own benefit. So it was really a sweet way in which that loneliness and alienation, the utter complete inability to reach out to anybody, to call anybody on the phone or anything pointed me to him and he met me there. And again, I, I love that you're using Christ as a case study because both on the cross and in the garden of Gethsemane, we see a Jesus who is, is utterly and totally alone. And it's a, it's a great gift to know that there's no, there's no valley or hardship or chasm that we have to navigate that Christ hasn't experienced firsthand. And I, I think that that can be a, can be a treasure when we have eyes to see it. Yes, absolutely. So Wendy, how has your experience equipped you to come alongside other people who are walking seasons of suffering? Well, one thing, it has certainly opened my eyes to ways I have dropped balls with friends in years past. And I have some gracious friends with whom I dropped the ball, but in their suffering. And then they came alongside of me in mine. And I realized what they had learned through their own struggles really gave me a model for mine. And one of the main things is letting go of the need to fix their struggle, you know, like in both situations in the mental illness and um, the cancer, there are a thousand things to try, right? There are all kinds of uh, new studies, new cancer treatments, new mental health treatments. There's holistic stuff. There's gluten-free food. There's this doctor, that doctor, but, and I was, always willing, you know, if someone really knew someone that was good that I should try or something I should do, I was glad to try it. But there comes a point where you just have to process. Right. And there came a point for me with both of my things that I couldn't try anything else. There was nothing else to try. And even if people suggested it to me, I didn't have the mental bandwidth. I can't do that. I mean, if you want to call that doctor for me and try to set up the appointment, I've done so much of that. When it was my husband, he was uh, autonomous. I couldn't force a gluten-free diet on him, you know, so you're getting all of these things because people are threatened by your trial. Yeah. They want to believe that that such a trial can be fixed because it threatens them to think that something may come on their lives that they can't Mm -hmm. fix like that. But I had friends who had been through trials that knew to sit with me and listen, and they didn't try to fix, and they weren't threatened by, at times, my lack of faith. Like, they they held faith for me when I was struggling to hold it for myself. Yeah. And they were confident in who God was for me when I was struggling whether I could trust God. That's again, another powerful picture to have people say, Hey, it's okay. If you're wobbly, I can, I can study you. You don't have to do it all. And I don't have to do it for you, but I can come alongside you when, when you need it. I had people that actually, I had two people that actually literally let me know that my trials caused them to doubt. No, three, it was three people. And I'm like, you know what? That really is not helpful. That is not. What What was the context in which they shared that? Well, it was after I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so the breast cancer on top of the struggles that they had been walking. And I, and I, you know, they loved me. 
Sure. And they hurt for me and they knew that God had allowed a hard thing already in my life and they didn't understand why I was now allowing another one. But what I really needed was the people who could stand in the storm and not be knocked over it and hope for me. You know, it's kind of like, it's like a wave knocks you down and it's really helpful if it doesn't knock all of you down. Like if there's right. somebody standing next sure. to you that you can grab onto their hand and they'll kind of help you up out of the, the wave. Right, right. And it's got to be, it's got to require some patience on your part to have other people say like, oh, well, your trial is now my trial. And you're so like, no, 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 <laughs> you have your trials. I have my trials. You stay with me in mine and I'll stay with you in yours. Yeah, it was disconcerting. Um, that's all I have to say about it. it that's fair. Good. How did that chapter of your journey change the way that you view God, Wendy? I have a lot more confidence in him. And you know, the thing I, I, I talk about this most times I write a book, so probably in more than one book, but there's this phrase that Joseph uses when he names his second son in Egypt. So it's after the dungeon, after all the bad stuff. And now he's been promoted in Egypt and he names his second son Ephraim, which is like the Hebrew for fruitful, because he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Hmm. And we all want to be fruitful. We just don't want to be fruitful in the land of our affliction. We want to be fruitful hmm. in the land we imagine for ourselves. But God has really boosted my confidence in his ability. I, the way I like to word it is like sin dive bombs our lives. And it's nuclear, it's radioactive, but God is sovereign over the fallout and he is supernaturally able to make fertile ground from, from radioactive fallout. Mm -hmm. And it's his miracle. And now I've seen it enough to believe it. And, and now I've looked for it, you know, I don't know where it's going to happen, but God does this thing that's totally unexpected. I have a fruitful life now you know, we limp along. We're not, I limp along, you know, literally and physically, my body, my mind is scarred. My body is scarred. And yet there is fruit. There's love, there's joy, there's peace in our home. And it always is just such a miracle to me when the boys and I, and, and often with Andy, with um, their dad, because he lives close by now, where the four of us can just genuinely enjoy something together. Hmm. And I always think, God, that is a miracle. Wow, that is a miracle. And But he's supernaturally able to do that. And, and it's so important that we hold hope for the next person when the next sufferer, when they have no ability to see it on their own. Yeah. That that phrase, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang on to that one. That that fruitful in the land of affliction, because I think sometimes, because affliction is so overwhelming, our our gut instinct is just just get get me out, like get me out of this place, get me out of this season. Let's fast forward to the other side of the dark, like get me to the dawn, and then when we're there, we can worry about bearing fruit. And you're saying, hey, sometimes God doesn't take us out of the season or the moment or the trial that we're in, but God God blesses us even in spite of it if we have hands to receive it and, and a heart that's cracked open to grace. Yep. What's that song though? We keep weeping 
Lord, help us keep sowing the seeds of your kingdom. For the day we will reap them, and that they that sow in tears will reap in joy. I mean, yeah. it's we sow in tears sometimes. Wendy, thank you so much. What tell us about for people who are new to you and your work? What are some other books that you've completed that that you're excited about that you think might be helpful to people who are are curious about uh, companions and suffering? My latest book is called "I Forgive You: Finding Peace and Moving Forward When Life Really Hurts." And um, I talk some in there about church hurt. I talk a lot in there about church hurt and relational hurt. Um, I used to um, be the deacon of women's theology and training at Marsville Church in Seattle. Okay. And that one um, had a epic, epic failure. And um, so I have a lot in there about how God companions us in um, relational conflict and the hope we have in Christ for uh, repentance and repair and reconciliation because he is supernatural. Wendy, let's let, lean into that for a moment with me. I'd love to hear what has been your experience about forgiving, maybe not just an individual, but forgiving a whole organization or a whole system in which maybe dysfunction was kind of baked into the cake and made it made it hard for people like you to thrive there. Yeah, no, that's a great question because I do very much work to see people as individuals. Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot of not deconstructing my faith, but deconstructing my individual experiences at Mars Hill and um, dealing with individuals. And, you know, I participated in the system, but what I have had to do in my own confession or repentance or repair is um, think about how that affected individuals because I don't know. I mean, I think there is definitely a place for corporate repentance and corporate repair. But for me, so much of my journey has been honesty with myself about who, if they walked into this room, I would really, really resent. Hmm. And working to, if, if I have the opportunity, articulate that to them. And then on the flip side, who, if, they walked into this room might really resent me. And because I was a leader in it for a while. So, but, um, you know, I I refer some to Desmond Tutu's book and and I forgive you. His book is called the book of forgiving. And he talks a lot about um, the humanity of us all. And so what we want to do is to make the one who harmed us into a caricature. But they are an image bearer of God as we are. And it really isn't until we'll lean into the full humanity of even the one who harmed us. And that's what we really need to do. I have time to talk about this is call them back to their humanity. They were created in the image of God and they are not acting like that. We call it dehumanization, right? Yeah. They're acting like, like I am not an image bearer of God. I'm not a human. Or they have dehumanized themselves by the way they've talked or treated others. And our goal is to call everybody back and say, no, you're creating the image of God. And this is what it means. And you need to repent and repair. Wendy, what did, what did it look like for you? Like, did you hear the Mars Hill podcast when it came out? And was that, And if so, was that cathartic for you or not so helpful? Yeah, I was on it. 
not a lot, but I, I was helpful. Um, I mean, helpful. I like to think I was, okay. I, um, but I wasn't part of it. Okay. But there was one episode that I'm, I might've been on a little bit. I'm not sure. Cause I, um, but it was, I think episode seven and it was very much the story of the particular situation that most closely affected me. And after which, um, Andy and I were not able to attend anymore. And as I listened to it, I had to pull over on the side of the road and just weep. And I realized it was the first time I had ever weeped over it because I had always been trying to figure out how to resolve it, how to correct it. For years, I didn't mourn it because I was still hoping for repair. Yeah. And then at that moment, I realized, you know what? This church is gone. You know, there's no bringing this couple that was slandered and abused at the church, good friends of mine, in front of the church and saying, hey, we were wrong and we want to re because the church isn't there anymore. Yeah. And I finally just let go of any desire to repair it and just mourned what was there. And that was really, I think it was healthy for me to have that moment of, of really mourning something I had been working against for so long. Yeah. So it was like as close to closure as you might get given the circumstances. Yeah, I think so. And I was kind of able to let go any desire to see repair because I don't know, there are no pieces left to repair really. Right. Right. And that, that can be a hard realization to come to because there's a part of you who is just like, oh, there is a, you know, if there is a debt, you fix it by paying off the debt. But if there's no money left to pay off the debt or nobody there to acknowledge the injustice, you're like, oh, wow, this is, there's just kind of this gaping hole that maybe, maybe lament and acceptance by God's grace is the only way forward. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a part of that project. That was deeply meaningful to my wife, Kelly, and I. I When the whole oh. thing was over, I, I cold called Sutton Turner and just said, hey, what insight do you have for me? And when you talk about calling people back to humanity, I was able to reach out to some of the people who had been a part of a pretty devastating experience in our own lives and not not to shame them, but to be able to say like, hey, I hear areas of that dysfunction that I own. And here, I want to acknowledge that this might be an opportunity for restoration and uh, repentance and reconciliation. And some people took me up on that and other people didn't. And that was, it was hard, but it felt like, okay, I feel like I'm walking out the forgiveness journey as, as far and as best as I know how. That's beautiful. I'm so glad it was helpful to you that way. I, I hope that um, it encourages people that we don't have to circle the wagons when someone is criticizing your ministry. Yeah. That, right. That the gospel allows us to face it head on. Yep. Name it for what it is. It's not going to destroy our ministry. What will destroy our ministry is circling the wagons and not listening and repairing as you can. So I, I hope that it has that kind of far reaching influence on listeners. Yeah. And I think that it's so counterintuitive, especially for those of us in the West who grew up doing ministries in the nineties and the early two thousands to acknowledge that, is it possible that God might let a ministry to die so that the embodied kingdom can actually move forward in the lives of those who are involved in that ministry. And that was a hard, hard thing for me to wrap my head around. 
Yeah. And you have to remember that the church has always been bigger than the building. Yeah. The church, you know, buildings and four, 501c3s come and go, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the spirit and the hearts of believers will endure. He's not going to, he's a deposit that guarantees the outcome, I think is how Paul words it in Ephesians. So, you know, like I said, 501c3s come and go, but the church will not be, not the, the gates of hell, right? Will not prevail against it. Indeed. What a great note for us to end on. Wendy, thanks again for your time. Uh, the book is called Companions in Suffering, and the new book again on forgiveness is called? I Forgive You. And that one's already out, or it's forthcoming? Yeah. Okay, great. No, it's out. Perfect. Well, look for that one uh, where, wherever you find uh, your books. And um, Wendy, if people want to find out more about your ministry, or if they want to follow you through your social channels, where should they go? Um, I'm at Wendy Alsup, A-L-S-U-P on Twitter and theologyforwomen.org is my blog. Perfect. Wendy, thanks again for joining us today. Have a good afternoon and God bless. All right. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.